I want to take about three to five minutes to talk about the term grace. Very important because we're going to meet a sermon series on grace. And it's just, if we don't understand what that word means, we really will miss the point of most of what I'm having to preach. So, in an Old Testament sense, the word grace, the, the, the word that's translated grace in the Old Testament, it, it has a little different meaning than the, the New Testament word for grace. In the Old Testament, that word generally um, was applied to being gracious or kind to a lesser person. So it, it has the picture of a king or someone with power and influence stooping down and blessing somebody who is lesser than them. The word grace or being gracious in the Old Testament with the idea of God, this God who's high on his throne, the creator of heaven and earth, coming down and showing kindness and favor. In the New Testament, the word grace has a, uh, while, while they're sort of similar, the emphasis on the New Testament is, is goodness that is given that is undeserved. And in the New Testament, the motive for this giving of goodness is the love of God. So I want to take like two minutes to unpack that. Very important that you know as we study and we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about undeserved favor. In other words, God decides that he's going to do something good for you, but you don't deserve it. This is what's different between grace and mercy. Some, some have said grace and mercy are like cousins. They're, they're related. But mercy is when you've done something wrong and you deserve to be punished. And the one who has the power to punish you says... I'm going to give you a break, and I'm not going to punish you for what you have done wrong. That is mercy. Grace is really taken at a whole other level where it's like, I'm not only going to not punish you, but I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to take what I have, and I'm going to give it to you, even though you don't deserve it. You've done nothing to earn it. It is undeserved or unmerited favor. So we need to understand that when we're using the word grace, when we look at all these New Testament passages where we're going to be studying the grace of God, we are very specifically talking about something that you do not actually deserve. You can't earn it. You didn't work long enough to make God happy enough that he finally decided he was going to answer your prayer. No, you didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, you don't deserve it. But God, out of the love that's in his heart and out of the goodness of who he is, he chooses to do good to you. Now, before I get to the, 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 my points this morning, one more thing by way of introduction. I'm going to show this morning, and I would, I would honestly say the five of my six points, five of them, are impossible to have without grace. There are certain needs that we have that only grace can supply. And I would say this, these are vital needs. 
And I, and I, and I want to I really emphasize that word vital. What it means is we cannot live, if it's truly vital, you cannot live without it. There are certain things, brothers and sisters, listen to me, we cannot live spiritually. We cannot live without grace. If it weren't for grace, we would all be dead. And I want to share with you, I've got six needs this morning. I would say five of them at the very least are vital that grace is the only answer for these needs. Number one, actually before I get to that, one more thing. It's important to understand that when God gives grace, that doesn't mean that you're saved. Just because God is a God of grace does not mean that you're saved. In fact, the Bible teaches that not everybody's saved. There are people who are going to go to hell and there are people who are going to go to heaven. And yet God is a God of grace and he does in fact give grace to everyone. Grace is his undeserved favor. In the uh, you know, theological realm, we use the term common grace. And what that means is there's a certain degree of grace that is common to everybody. God in his goodness is good to everybody, even though not everybody is saved. And I've seen folks before that have been able to recognize God was good to me in this area of my life. God was good to me in this area of my life. And they mistakenly think that because God was good to them in certain areas of their life, that that means that they must be saved. No. What it means is that God's a God of grace. And that he is a God that gives unmerited favor, undeserved favor and goodness at times to all people. Jesus addresses this concept in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Think about that sentence for a moment before we read the next. Love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you so that you might be like God, your Father. That's the way He is. He loves His enemies. He does good to those who persecute Him. So if you want to be a son or a daughter of your Father, and you want to take on His characteristics, then you must love your enemies. It tells us something about the nature of God, and He follows up with this statement. So, for He, speaking of God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. So God brings a day, a new day and a new dawn even to the wicked. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So even the, the rain that waters the crops and brings produce and brings favor and brings blessing. The, Jesus says, God, the, that your heavenly father... He, he does it for all, good and evil. The sun rises for good and evil. The rain comes to righteous and unrighteous. So there is this degree of common grace that God gives to all of us. But there are other areas that grace, when it is applied, brings about true salvation and heart transformation. And I want us to look this morning at these areas that we need grace for. Number one, we need grace for salvation. 
Look what Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 10 tell us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's the longest passage of Scripture I'm going to read this morning, and I want to break it down quickly. He says we were dead in our trespasses. Consider the word dead. It's unmistakable that the Apostle Paul is communicating. He's trying to use a word that says, however wrong we were, we were beyond the point of any type of repair. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins against God. So I want to ask again, what can a dead man do to rectify a situation? The obvious answer is nothing. Paul says you really need to see like where you stood with God in that context. It was so bad, you were so wrong, it was so far over, you were dead. But, but, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. He's the one that made us alive. You were saved by grace. And then we have really this definition. You know, the Bible itself gives us this definition of grace. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not anything you did. You don't deserve it. It was completely and totally a work of God. It takes grace to be saved. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no method. There is nothing you can do to earn it. There is no payment that can be made that can earn salvation. And this is a stumbling block to many. We want to feel like there's something we can do to be saved. That there's something I can give that can influence God to save me. We want to feel like it's 95% God. I get it. I need God's favor. I know, preacher, I need God to be really kind to me. I know I need God to forgive me. But I should at the very least, you know, play a 1%, 2%, like 3% role in this. And the reality is we do not. Salvation is 100% by grace, only by grace. And what is grace? The undeserved, unmerited favor of God. You don't deserve it, but God, out of His love for you, and out of the nature of grace, God gives grace and saves us. Salvation is a total, complete resting on God's grace. Number two. Grace provides our, the answer to our need for purpose. Look what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.15. He said, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. Now the Apostle Paul is speaking very 
uh, specific to his calling. But the Bible teaches us in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 that all of God's sons and daughters are part of the body of Christ. We have a role to play in God's family. Paul was talking specifically about his role, but notice what he says. Number one, God had called me, set me apart, but while I was in the womb, before I was ever born. Now catch this. Paul lived for decades as a wicked person. He was a sinner. He was a persecutor of the church. And it wasn't until he was later in, in the older years of his life when he's actually literally on the road to go get some Christians and throw them in prison that Paul has an encounter with Jesus that changes his life forever. That's why Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. But Paul notices this, what he says about God. Before I was ever born, God had a plan for my life. Even though God knew good and well that I would spend decades of my life fighting against him, he still, before I was ever born, had a plan for my life. This is grace, brothers and sisters. This is the unmerited, undeserved goodness of God in our lives. And our very purpose, that which God created us for, is an act of grace. Number three, grace is the only answer to our need for justification. Justification is an important part of salvation. I just pray the Holy Spirit helps us this morning receive these truths. You know what to be justified means? It means to stand in right standing justly for something. And I want to give you some examples of what that might look like in a common day court of law. We might hear that somebody shot somebody and killed them. And they're in the court of law facing murder charges. But then we hear the whole story. We find out that this person was acting in self-defense. We find out that the person who was killed opened up fire first. We find out that in addition to it being self-defense, there were multitudes of other people in the building. Women and children, people that couldn't protect themselves. And if it wasn't for the heroic acts of this particular person, not only would he have died, but multitudes of others would have died as well. And when all the details come out, here's what we determine. He is justified in the act. Therefore, not guilty of a crime. Another scenario where someone would be considered justified would be when we examine the evidence and find out they never actually did what they were accused of in the first place. Whatever they were supposedly they're on trial for, we look at all the evidence and we find out, no, none of that actually happened. They're not guilty of any of that. They stand justified. So to be justified literally means in the court of law to be not guilty of a crime. But folks, every one of us are guilty of sin. Every one of us. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
How could you possibly be justified in the sight of God? Well, the Bible just tells us, by grace, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Look at Romans 3.24, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're going to read one more passage here in a, phone for, in a few minutes that uses the word redemption. Redemption means that the payment was paid. So we are justified before God because God in his righteousness couldn't just sweep our sins under the carpet. God couldn't look at you and see all the evil that you've done, all the wicked that you, wickedness you've done, all your, your, your crimes against God, and just say, well, I love you, so I'm going to sweep them under the carpet, and we're just going to keep this between you and I. No. In order for God to say you stand justified, truly justified in the court of law, there had to be a payment for what you did. And Jesus Christ, through his blood on the cross, paid that payment so that God could say, you and I stand justified completely in right standing with him because of his grace. Child of God, there will be times that you and I blow it. It just, it just will. There will be times... And, and how, you, how you screw it up is going to look different than how the person to your left or your right screws it up. Sometimes you're just lazy and you just won't get in the Word of God. Sometimes, you know, you make much worse decisions and you sin on a greater scale. I don't care who you are, all of us at times will fall short. And there will come times where you must learn that the only reason you were ever able to approach God in the first place was because of His grace. It is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God in your life. And the only reason that you can still go boldly to the throne of grace is because you are justified in the sight of God through the redemption of Jesus Christ and Him alone. There are certain things that only grace can provide. Number four, the need for faith. Look at Acts 8. 1827, speaking of the Apostle Paul, it says, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those, look at this statement, who, through grace, had believed. Even the power to believe God, to have faith in God, it comes by grace. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. It's grace that saves us, but we're saved through faith. And then we learn here that it's even grace that gives us power to believe in the first place. It's a work of God from the very beginning to the very end. You know what faith is in the Bible? This is an important term to understand as well. Faith in the Bible is believing God to the point of obedience. That's what real faith is. It's an oxymoron to say, 
I believe God, but I don't obey God. It just doesn't make sense. Jesus said it this way. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say? That doesn't make sense. The very fact of you not doing what I say is proof I'm not your Lord. To say that I believe Jesus, but I don't believe what he says, well, that's, you don't really believe him. Jesus said, for example, repent lest you perish. The number of Christians who don't think they have to repent is mind-blowing. It's just crazy nonsense. Listen, if you've not repented of your sins, you're going to split hell wide open. You want to know how I know that? Because Jesus said, repent, lest you perish. Jesus isn't a liar. See how stupid it is to say, well, I believe in Jesus. I just don't think you have to repent. What Jesus do you believe in? Some figment of your imagination, some fictional Jesus that you created in your own mind? Because the Jesus of the Bible says you have to repent or you're going to perish. Now, we're not saved because we repent. See, I'm talking to you about real faith. We're saved by grace through faith. But real faith is a faith that believes God and believes God to the point we obey God. And the Bible says that type of faith, saving faith, even that is a gift from God, that God himself gives us the faith that we might believe him and obey him. Number five, grace is the only answer to our need for forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we have forgiveness. Again, we see that word redemption. In other words, the cost has been paid that God might forgive us. Now, I want to do something real quick, if you'll allow me to this morning. I want to take a three to five minute detour relative to forgiveness. But I want to talk about our forgiveness to one another. And then I want to come back to God's forgiveness of us. Over the years, one of the things as a pastor that I have watched people struggle with is the question of, have I really forgiven somebody or not? Uh, I've had people come before that have thought, well, um, I can't be right with God because I haven't forgiven this person in my life, but I don't know how to forgive this person. So I want to talk about forgiveness, and what I want you to understand is that biblically, it's actually possible for forgiveness to occur without reconciliation. So forgiveness in the Bible is literally the um, relinquishing of debt. In this era of time, we still use the word forgiveness to reference debt when it has been relinquished. One of the greatest stories that, or, or parables that Jesus ever gave on forgiveness was literally about money. And so many of you under the sound of my voice, you're going to be familiar with the story. You remember Jesus gave a story about a man that owed a ton of money. He couldn't repay it. And so the only thing that could happen to the guy that, you know, 
that, that he owed the money to was the guy could put him in jail. And so there's this man that owes a ton of money, and he's in jail because of it. Eventually, the one to whom he owed the money to thought to himself, you know what, I don't want this guy to spend his life in prison. I'm going to forgive the debt. And he just released the debt. In other words, you don't owe me anything else. And the, Jesus tells the story that this man gets out of jail. He's walking down the street, free man, forgiven of his debt, and he comes across somebody that used to owe him a little bit of money. The amount that he was owed was like almost nothing. I mean like peanuts compared to what he had been released the debt of. And Jesus said that man who had just got out of prison, who had just been forgiven a ton of debt, he became enraged at this other person who owed him a little something and threw that person in prison. Jesus said ultimately the original master became so furious when he heard about this that he took the man, put him back in prison and said, fine, you ain't getting out until you pay the last penny. He uses that analogy to say, so if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Very, 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 very important to understand biblically, forgiveness is about what you owe me. That's what it's about. I'm going to use an example with Bryson because he's closest to me. If Bryson owes me something, maybe I think he owes me an apology. Maybe I think Bryson, this is a true story, by the way. Bryson's a youth pastor here at this church. Bryson hasn't said hi to me once this morning. He has, not, he has not shaken my hand. He has not told me yet today that he thinks I'm a good pastor. He has literally been within 15 feet of me and said, none of those things. My little feelings are hurt, as you can tell. Now, I feel like he owes me an apology. I feel like he owes it to me to acknowledge he hurt me. Well, what if he never does? Now, I'm a prisoner to my own unforgiveness. I can't be happy, I can't feel whole, I can't be good, I can't have a good day until he gives me what he owes me. That's what unforgiveness is. It's the belief somebody owes you something. Jesus said you got to forgive people. Now, Let's say that it's something far more significant. Let's say, you know, Bryson has truly hurt me in a real way and we're not joking around. I can make the decision to forgive him. You know what? You, you don't have to pay that back. You, you, don't, you don't owe me anything. You don't have to acknowledge that you hurt me. You don't owe me anything. And now I'm free to go about my life and not feel like I can't be happy today because this person owes me and this person owes me and this person owes me. You'll live your life miserable if that's how you're going to live. And here's the fact, you, you, you just you can't make people pay up. It might be true, they do owe you that. But what are you going to do, be miserable forever because they ain't paid? See, this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness says, I release that debt and you no longer owe it to me. But it's very possible for me to forgive my brother of the debt and he don't care. He's not grateful. He's not thankful. In fact, next week, 
Same thing happens. He still doesn't shake my hand. He still doesn't look at me. See, reconciliation requires that both parties try to work at the relationship. Now, I've seen Christians before, some who have truly forgiven. Truly. But the other side doesn't care. They've never acknowledged they've done wrong. They've never truly been sorry about what happened. There isn't any real repentance. Listen, if that's the case, you're not going to want to spend time with the person. You're going to sit in a room and it's going to be awkward. You're both going to wish you weren't there. Because there's no reconciliation. But you can't force reconciliation. I can choose in this scenario, I can choose to forgive my brother, but I can't force him to appreciate it. I can't force him to acknowledge that, 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 that it was an honorable thing that I forgave him. I can't choose him. To, I can't make him even acknowledge he needed forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that happens in my heart where I say, I'm done with this, man. I can't hold this pain the rest of my life where I feel like the whole world owes me something. Because if I do, I'm really just a prisoner to these same people that hurt me. Like, I already let them cause X amount of pain in my life. Now I'm just letting them continue to cause pain in my life because I can't be happy until they fix things. What a terrible way to live. Forgiveness says, I'm done with this. I released the debt, man. You don't owe me anything. Now, here's one of the keys to telling, have you truly forgiven somebody? And only you know in your heart and only God knows. But here's one of the keys. And... and Look, look, we, we can play the Christian game all day long, and we can say, well, if that happened, sure, I would, I would love to be back in a relationship with them. But you have to know your honest heart, okay? Here's one of the keys to knowing if you truly forgiven somebody. If they wanted to walk back into your life today, would you let them? The answer is no, you have not forgiven them. If they wanted to walk back in and walk back in correctly, sincerely, with a sense of brokenness and acknowledgement of what they did that hurt you and why it was wrong, willing to discuss how they can make sure this does not happen again, willing to put the safeguards in place to make sure that the pain that they've caused you before never happens again. They're willing to honor, if you will, you know, your pain, your sorrow, and they're willing to work with you. They're like, I get it. This was my fault. But, but I, I, I want us to be reconciled, and so I'm willing to do anything, whatever it would take. If somebody, if, if somebody that you feel like, you know, you might be holding unforgiveness against, if somebody truly came back into your life and that was their attitude, would you be willing to let them back in? And if the answer is no, I wouldn't. Well, then you haven't forgiven that person yet. Because Jesus would let us back in and lets us back in over and over and over again when we come with that mindset and that heart, Okay? And Jesus said, just as you've been forgiven, that's how you have to forgive others. But you're going to find some of you are like, well, yeah, the answer is yes. Yes, sir, I would. I would love for that to happen. But they won't. They won't repent. They won't change. They, they're not broken. They're, they're the same they've always been. Okay, you're going to find there's not any real reconciliation. But if you're going to move forward in your life and you're going to have peace in your life, you must choose to forgive. Otherwise, they may never pay up. They never, may never say they're sorry. They may never make things right. And if you don't think you can be happy until they do what they got to do, then you might be miserable the rest of your life. You've got to release that debt, man. You've got to release that debt, sister. 
you cannot give these people in your life that type of power over you. You've just got to release the debt. You don't owe me anything at all. And so there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, I want to come back to the reality that we need the grace of God, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God for forgiveness. Think about how many times we have broken the law of God. Think about how many times in your life. You know the Bible says that to, to even know what is right, like to just even know what is good and not do it, that that is a sin? I mean, we start talking about sin, and off, we, we try to go to the major sins, but God's Word says to even know what is right and not do that. That's a sin. I mean, how often do we sin and we can't pay the debt? We haven't just sinned against each other. We've sinned against God. And God says, forgiven. Redeemed and paid for through the blood of Jesus. Forgiven. 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 And I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters. There are times that we as Christians have absolutely nothing we can do but throw ourselves upon the forgiveness of God. And this is a humbling reality about the Christian life. When we begin to see how much we need the grace of God, there are people right now untold multitudes in the church they feel distant from God they're away from God they're not giving God their best because there's this deep sense of shame that they could never give God enough they could never fix things enough they've screwed things up bad enough listen it's always about the grace of God it was the grace of God to start with it's the grace of God now you have just got to start living for him now you know you can't fix it all and no matter how well you live for him you still need the grace of God for forgiveness in your life I'd been saved about four or five years and I had one of the most significant uh, revelations about the grace of God it totally transformed my life and I pray that this will help somebody this morning so What I'm about to say is really not an exaggeration. I could probably find a better way to say it, but I'm not exaggerating when I say this. That I was a really arrogant Christian for the first four or five years I was saved. I truly believed, I mean believed it for real, that I was holier than the rest of you all. I didn't just believe it, I knew it. I knew that I loved God more than you. I was closer to God than you were. And that was exactly why God was using me so great and he wasn't using you. I wouldn't have said those words back then, trust me. But I'm telling you, I know my heart. And that's very similar to the way that my mind and my attitude was from about the age 20 to 25. And this is the truth. I I was about as holy of a Christian as they come. I spent two years of my life where I don't think I went a single week in over a hundred consecutive weeks where I didn't fast from food entirely for at least 24 hours a week. Two years. It's a long time. Way to go, Joplin. I went to every church service. I studied the Word of God. I went two years without a TV in my house. I'm serving in jails, I'm doing ministry, I'm, I'm all in. 
I read a passage about four and a half years in. And here's what the passage was. Jesus is talking to somebody, a, a scribe, um, part of the group of all the Pharisees and Sadducees, trying to get Jesus to get caught up. And, and uh, this guy specifically is a, they call him a lawyer. When we use the term lawyer, we think of people that sue people, and we think of bad people. Lawyers are bad people. If you're a lawyer here this morning, I hope you get saved. <laughs> Just kidding. There's some good lawyers. There's some good lawyers out there. I know a couple. But when the Bible uses the term lawyer, it's not talking about a lawyer like we think of. When the Bible uses the term lawyer, it's talking about somebody who's dedicated their life to studying the law of God. Okay, So these are people that really know the Old Testament law. And so, anyways, Jesus is talking with one of these guys. And the question is, like, so of all the laws, what's the greatest one? And the guy answers, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Jesus answers, yes, you have answered correctly. So I'm reading that, and and I'm convinced to this day, uh, it's been over 15 years now, and so I don't ever see this changing in my life. Um, I've talked with people about what I'm about to tell you before and nothing anybody's ever told me has ever been able to change my mind about what I'm about to tell you. I was reading that verse, and I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to me and asked me this question, because this question came to me. It wasn't like my thought. It was a question. I heard it in that still small voice in my heart. I read that. The greatest of all laws is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. That's the greatest of all laws. And here's the question that followed out of nowhere. So then what is the greatest sin? I thought, well, that's a strange question in response to the greatest law. And I sat there and I meditated on that. What's the greatest sin? The first thing my mind goes to is trying to think of all the sins. I'm meditating on that. I'm trying to think, what is the connection to this question about the greatest law? And it dawned on me. The greatest sin must be the breaking of the greatest law. I'm convinced of that to this day. Nobody will ever, nobody's ever been able to convince me differently. We want to talk about murder, and we, we can even, there's certain crimes against humans that I don't even like to let words come out of my mouth to talk about what they are, as wicked as wicked can be. But I am convinced that even those are not the greatest of all sins. The greatest of all sin has to be the breaking of the greatest law. Has to be. And so my mind, like, goes to that, and my heart sees that, and I'm like, whoa, 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 hold, hold on a second. There's not a single day in all of my life that I can say all day long, I have loved God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and all my mind. All day long. Every single day of my life, at some point or another, I, I am incapable. It doesn't matter if you, who, who cares if you're incapable of doing it? It's still a sin. Like, I am incapable of loving God with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my strength, all day long, every day, I just, I, and, and I knew, I, so here's, so I'm like, so I'm actually guilty, I am guilty of the greatest of all sins every day of my life. Now this is something, I'm just going to tell you, that m- many of my Christian friends have an unbelievably difficult time coming to grips with. They don't like that, they don't want to feel that way, and there's a sense of you that you want to feel holier than you really are, and you want to pat yourself on the back like I did for five years, and you want to think that you're so holy and God's so proud of you. 
And I'll just tell you, only the Holy Ghost can bring the same revelation to you that he did to me. You are much more of a sinner in the need of God's grace than you think you are. But at that point in my life, I immediately thought to myself, whoa, then how can I be saved? How can I be saved? If every day, no matter how hard I try, I am still guilty of sin, and of that, the greatest of all sins, how can I be saved? Let me tell you something. I knew that I was saved. Believe it or not, I did not doubt my salvation. Like, I knew that I was saved. It's just my theology didn't make sense. Because I'm like, well, you can't be saved, you know, unless you live holy like Joplin does. That's the, that's the way that you're saved. And then all of a sudden, I recognize that even in my best, I'm not near as holy as I thought I was. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So then how am I saved, God? I will never forget where I was at when I had the revelation of God's grace. I'd been thinking on this literally for about a month, trying to wrap my mind around how it's possible to be in right standing with God and, not, and, and yet still be guilty of sin. Sin that no matter how much I hated it, I couldn't, I couldn't do it perfectly. I wanted to be like Jesus, but I couldn't be like Jesus. I wanted to live perfectly, but I couldn't live perfectly. So all of a sudden, this great awareness of and I'm telling you, it was a good month in my life because it changed my life forever, but it was a hard month. Because all of a sudden, I realized I wasn't near as holy as I thought I was. And then I was ashamed about my attitude the last four years. And then I'm like, well, God, wait, well, well, well I thought you were using me because of how holy I was. And, and now, all of a sudden, not only was I wrong, I had this arrogant attitude about it. Why'd you use me at all back then, God? Why, why would you anoint me? Why would you use me in any capacity? And I'm like trying to figure these things out. My theology is being turned upside down. And I'll never forget where I was. I was literally on Broadway, headed north, out of Wellington. When you go north out of Wellington, there's two little turns, and there's this uh, aerotech place on the west side of the road. I was almost a quarter of a mile headed north in my truck, about a quarter of a mile before getting to that uh, business. Like That's how vivid this memory is in my life. It was a turning point in my life. And I got the answer. And the answer was simply this. I was saved by grace. The reason God had used me in the last four years in my arrogance, it wasn't that I was lost. I was saved to save to be. But I was an arrogant young man. And God still used me. You want to know why God used me? Undeserved favor. It wasn't anything I had done to earn it. It was undeserved. Unmerited. There's no excuse for it other than God just loved me. And then I realized, why am I actually saved? Why does God forgive me? Why, how can I be in right standing with God if I don't love him perfectly with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind every day? And if that's the greatest of all the laws and I continually break it in my life, how can I possibly be in right standing with God? And, and I saw the grace, undeserved favor. It's not anything I've ever done to deserve it. And I'm telling you, it absolutely radically changed my life. I remember thinking to myself before that day, well, people who teach this stuff They'll just live any way they want to live if you believe that. All I can tell you is it did the opposite to me. When I realized how great God's grace was in my life and how much I needed it, I mean this, it made me want to live for Him even more. 
when I realized how foolish I had been and how God's goodness and undeserved favor had covered my life, it just made me want to live for him even more. When I realized how much he loved me and how much favor he had shown to me and that I had deserved absolutely none of it, it didn't make me want to go out and trample grace. It made me want to be even holier, but this time not out of trying to earn God's favor, out of a sense of just gratitude and gratefulness that his love and his grace for me, it extended beyond anything I could ever ask or imagine. It changed my life forever. Finally this morning, grace is God's answer to true spiritual peace. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, Through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and worth. Eternal comfort. The type of comfort that is not shaken. The type of comfort that leads beyond this life. Eternal comfort. Good hope. It comes through grace. And here's why. When I recognize that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever... I recognize that no matter what is ahead of me, I can trust in the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Can I tell you that I've watched God do an unbelievable work here at the Well Worship Center, and over the years, I've constantly just had to learn to trust upon the grace of God. There's such a, uh, a danger of unspiritual, even unsaved people, taking the truth of God's grace and, and, and misusing it. You know, even the Apostle Paul at times had to defend himself. He's like, they twist the things that we say and try to say that we basically are saying you can live however you want because of grace. A thousand times no. That's not what we said. Paul had to do that. He literally had to write that. And I think there's a lesson there for us that if we're not properly teaching grace, uh, if nobody's misunderstanding what we're saying, we're probably not properly teaching grace. Because people will take it and they will abuse it and they'll twist it and they won't use it the right way. But it doesn't change the fact. It's the undeserved, unmerited, unfavor of God, brothers and sisters, that saved us. It's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God that's going to keep us and sustain us and see us through. And if if we're going to have hope on what comes on in the future and, 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 and whatever lies ahead, we've got to trust in the grace of God. I see God do great things, and I don't understand it all. I'm telling you, the, the, the more that you learn about the depths of God and the more you learn the Word of God, you realize how little you actually know. It's truth. I see God do great things. I watch God move in these services. I see people tear up as, as I'm up here preaching. I, I see the Holy Spirit moving. And you know, one of the things I know, a, a big part of it is we've got a group of people that care enough to get together on Saturday night and pray every single week for church. I know that God answers prayer, but listen to me. It's not as if somehow that group of folks earned the favor of God for us this morning. And God owed it to us because we did something that he had to pay us back for. No, 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 no. A thousand times, no. And I find myself praying, literally this morning, out on my deck, praying for church this morning. That's what I'm praying. God, we, we, we need a revival. Like, we need an awakening. 
We don't deserve it. I know we don't deserve it. I know, Lord, if, if you were to look at the collectiveness of all of us here at the well, and you put me right there in the mix of them, we don't deserve some great move of God. We don't deserve that your spirit would fall upon us and change us. But God, I am appealing to your grace for no other reason than God, you are good and you love your people and you are a God of grace. Lord, I am asking this morning for no other reason than your grace, undeserved favor. God, would you pour yourself out on us? And I've had to learn as a pastor to rely on the grace of God. And when we see here that we have this eternal comfort, listen, brother, listen, sister, you'll never find eternal comfort in your faith until you humble yourself to the point of relying totally upon the grace of God. If you think in order for God to bless your life, in order for God to be good to you, that you've got to get this right and 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 this right, you'll convince yourself that at some point or another you're going to fail. You might already say, I tried it, Joplin, I tried it. And there might be some arrogant fools here this morning under my voice that are like me the first five years that I was saved. And you still think that you're so holy and you're so good and that's why God blesses you. I pray the Holy Spirit will wake you up. Nothing wrong with being holy. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. I believe in holiness. I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't earn nothing from God. Grace is the undeserved unmerited favor of God and there are people here this morning on the sound of my voice you have got to throw your entire existence on the grace of God this morning you have got to quit letting your inabilities and your lack and your failures and what you can't do and how you just feel like I could never get back to a place where somehow I feel like you know God would bless me you have got to stop looking at yourself and all your failures and all the reasons God couldn't bless you. You've got to get your eyes. You've got to pray the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of your heart to see the goodness of God, the love of God. He is a God of grace. The Bible says He is the God of all grace. It's a title of God, the God of all grace, unmerited favor. It is enough for you. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place this morning. I want to conclude with two thoughts. Number one, grace is what separates the true living God from all other gods, little g. When, when you study the other gods of other religions, they're not gods of grace. There's always something we must do in order to come into right standing with these little gods. Doesn't matter any denomination, or not denomination, any other religion. Any other false religion of the world, you name it, and you really study it, you'll find out their God, little g, is not a God of grace. It's what separates the one true God, the living God, from all others. He's a God of grace, undeserved favor. You didn't, you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. We just have a hard time accepting that. Give me like two or three minutes before you guys start playing. I want to say something that I didn't have time to say at the first service. Obviously, with me preaching on grace, I'm th I've been thinking about grace. At that first service this morning, there was a moment that I heard a voice coming from the, 
the speakers. And uh, this might sound strange to you, but uh, all I can say is I understand the anointing. I know, I know what the anointing is. And I heard the anointing of God coming from this voice, and I looked up to see who was that from. And it was my daughter over here singing background vocals. And uh, if you followed her through the years, you know she got, God does a, has a unique gift on her life to sing. And I was just thinking about how good God has been to me in my life. Talking about God's, the grace of God, unmerited favor to save us. Unmerited favor, right, to even give us faith to believe Him. And this is what I, I'm just going to tell you because this is what came to my mind, okay? I'm just going to share with you what was going on in your pastor's heart this morning. I went back to the night that I was thinking about killing myself. There's a lot of details of that night that I've never shared, but this is one of them I've never, ever, ever shared. And I, and I just, it was, it was in my mind that night. I, just want to, I, I want you to get a vision of who I was before I was saved. About 5 o'clock in the morning, I was so messed up. One of my roommates, who was one of my best friends, he and I were so at each other's throat that I, I, I literally thought there was a chance we might get in a fight. We were so messed up mentally that night. I thought there was a chance, because we were so messed up, I thought there was a chance we might fight to the death. And there was a part of me that knew I needed to get out of the room. This is so stinking embarrassing. I'm just telling you, this is what went through my mind this morning. I got up to try to walk away, but I was so messed up on hallucinogens that the room felt like a bowl. And this is just as embarrassing as I'll get out, but I, I just want you to know what was going on through my mind. I got up that day, that, that about 5 a.m. that morning, and, and to get to my room... On a flat floor like this, I walked like this. You will never know how messed up of a human I was. I thought the floor was going to cave in on me. I was that messed up on drugs. The floor was just in my mind. I finally got back to my bed. I just got on my bed and I just like laid down there. And I remember just thinking... I don't want to live like this anymore. I just would rather die. That's all I know. And I thought, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to figure out my life later. And I had it convinced in my mind that my friend in the other room had put a spell on me. And that if I closed my eyes, I was going to suffocate to death. Yeah, that's how, mind, how messed up my mind was. I really believe that. And I thought, this is so stupid, Joplin. Close your eyes and go to sleep. And I closed my eyes. And I couldn't breathe. I go about 60 seconds and I'd open my eyes and I'd gasp for air. And I think this is so stupid. Close your eyes and breathe. I closed my eyes. I'd hold them as long as I could. And I'd open them and take the biggest gasp of air. That was me. And I was laying there and I thought to myself, 
kill yourself, dude. And out of nowhere, this thought came to myself, so what if hell's real? And I'm laying there, and I think, you know, you need to figure out if God even exists. Where'd that thought come from? So I laid there, and that thought came into my head, what if God exists? I literally looked over, and about six feet from me was a little orange Gideon Bible that had been given to me four years earlier in eyesight in the middle of my room. And I thought, I'm going to pick that thing up and read it. And I picked it up and I read it, and most of you know the story from there. 30 days later, I gave my life to God. This morning, I sat there, and I was thinking about me walking through that room, afraid the floor was going to collapse, how messed up my brain was on drugs, how fried I was, how close I was to kill myself. And, and I thought, now, that is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. That in that moment of my life, the Bible would be right there in my room, six feet from me, and that I would start thinking about reading that book. That is the undeserved favor of God. God reminded me where it all started for me this morning. It was undeserved. It was unmerited. I didn't do anything to earn it. Nothing at all. My daughter's singing. I started thinking about my family and my wife, and I started looking around at this church. And I look at all that God's done in the last 20 years, and I'm like, it's always been your grace, God. You didn't save me because of how good I was. You haven't blessed us because of how great of a job we've done. And I'm telling you, you really get a hold of what I'm telling you this morning. It won't make you want to go trample on that grace. It'll make a man want to serve God with all of his heart. There are people here this morning, though, you're afraid to serve God because you put too much stock in what you can or can't do. And until you get a revelation of the true grace of God and you see that it is the goodness of God. Now, I'll ask it this way and I'll be done. we got to close. I'll ask it this way. It's not a question of... Are you good enough to serve God? It's not a question of, are you good enough to do this? It's a question of, is God good enough to deserve your best? And is He getting your best? It's not a question of, are you going to fail? Should you try it? It's not a question. The question is, is God good enough? Does God deserve your best or not? 